0: It's Wednesday, May 29th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The first big trial in the opioid crisis has kicked off in Oklahoma and will have wide-ranging implications for hundreds of other lawsuits. The state will argue that Johnson & Johnson's deceptive marketing campaign created a public nuisance that will cost the state $17 billion to take care of. Sarah Randazzo, legal reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for what it's all about. Next, a small preview of what we can expect as 2020 starts coming our way, fake videos and what big tech companies do to respond to them. Last week, a video was circulated of Nancy Pelosi slurring her words and sounding drunk. Fact checkers soon deemed the video fake, but it took Facebook 32 hours to address the issue and didn't even remove the video. Sarah Fisher, media reporter at Axios, joins us to break down Facebook's response to fake videos. Finally, it's time to start ditching those chore charts and start embracing allowance tracking apps. Kids still want money from the bank of mom and dad, and parents still want to impart a basic work ethic. But lists of chores on the fridge and saving in piggy banks doesn't cut it with the smartphone generation. Julie Jargon, family and tech correspondent with The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how kids' allowance works in the smartphone age. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: I believe
2: the evidence will show that justice for Oklahomans means requiring these defendants to clean up the terrible, tragic mess that they have left us with in our state, whatever the cost.
0: Joining us now is Sarah Randazzo, legal reporter for The Wall Street Journal, the First big trial in the opioid crisis has just kicked off in Oklahoma. It's going to be a really interesting look and to see how the country has spiraled into this big, devastating opioid epidemic. And it could indicate to what degree drug companies themselves who are accused of fueling this crisis will be held responsible. There's hundreds of lawsuits pending across the country. The first one has to do with Oklahoma and Johnson & Johnson. They're arguing that The marketing practices of Johnson & Johnson are to blame for widespread drug addiction. What do we know about this trial?
1: Johnson & Johnson is the only company left that's going to trial. But when this case was first filed two years ago, Oklahoma's really... Big target was more Purdue Pharma, which makes OxyContin. But back in March, Purdue reached a $270 million settlement, which got itself out of this case. And then just on Sunday, a third defendant called Teva Pharmaceutical, based in Israel, also settled for $85 million. So it's left the entire case resting on the shoulders of, of Johnson and Johnson, which is an interesting situation since they're not the company that people most associate with opioids.
0: What is the specific argument against Johnson and Johnson? What drug are they pointing to that caused people to get Get addicted to opioids.
1: They say that all of these companies. Their allegation is that they broadly marketed opioids to say that they should be used for really widespread pain management instead of just severe pain or end of life pain, which used to be more prevalent before the mid '90s. And specifically, Johnson Johnson made a few drugs. One is a fentanyl patch that's called Duragesic that still is made by the company. They had another opioid painkiller called Nucinta that they sold off in 2015. And then the state is also roping in some businesses Johnson & Johnson had until 2016 that actually made the raw materials and processed the poppy into narcotic raw materials that were then used to make other drugs that other companies made. So they're kind of looking at all these different things from the company and also looking at broad marketing that they were involved in through pain management groups that would have broad ad campaigns saying opioids are good for XYZ reason without naming any drugs specifically.
0: This trial is going to be very high profile. They say that's going to last maybe about two months. There's cameras that are allowed in the court room. So we're going to be getting updates on this thing constantly. And it's just so important because of the implications it has for all of the other lawsuits that are pending against drug makers and whatnot, being on the hook for getting people addicted to opioids. Specifically, how is Oklahoma going to argue this against Johnson & Johnson? They're using a public nuisance law that that's how they're going to trying to argue can you help explain that
1: when they started this case two years ago they had several other causes of action in there including fraud and things involving medicaid and then a couple weeks or months before trial they Got rid of all their claims and really focused in on public nuisance, which is basically a, a pretty wide ranging r- law that can be used for any time the public's access or health is being implicated by something. And so it's never been used in quite this context to try to hold a, a drug maker accountable for a public health crisis, but it's been used in things like private property disputes or public property disputes. And it's been used with mixed success in, in other cases over the years involving lead paint and climate change and different things. But this is a, a somewhat novel use of this
0: law. So the trial just got underway. What have opening statements been like for both sides?
1: Each side got two hours. The state really summarized its entire arc of of what they think Johnson & Johnson did. And Purdue, even though they've settled, they did come up in the openings. They started with Purdue launching OxyContin in 1996 and then said their narrative was that Johnson & Johnson basically copied some of the things Purdue did with its own drugs and that over time they showed charts tracking the number of prescriptions going up and and the amount of addiction and, and drug overdose deaths going up. And so they say that shows correlation between the two. And then Johnson Johnson got up there and and pointed to the fact that its drugs are heavily regulated and that it follows all regulations from the FDA and and the DEA in terms of how many drugs can enter the market and and what kinds of labels they need. And they say their labels clearly warned of of any risks. And so it was just a real classic back and forth as these openings tend to be of one side laying it on thick and then the other one countering just as strongly.
0: Johnson & Johnson has not had a good go at it recently. They were also in a bunch of lawsuits for their baby powder products. We're just expected to see a lot of testimony from family members who've been impacted by the opioid crisis and then uh, state officials, I guess they said that how the state could fix all this stuff, it would cost them about $17 billion.
1: That number, Johnson Johnson, is, is really pushing back on and saying it's, it's a bit excessive. And how could it cost them that much over the next 20 or 30 years to fix this? And they're trying to get us to pay for things like needle exchanges and yoga programs. And we'll hear a lot more about that as the trial goes on in terms of what went into that number and what the state thinks it'll cost to fix this and, and why the company doesn't think it should be its responsibility.
0: Sarah Rondazzo, Legal Report for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Of course, thanks. We
2: thought we had some level of agreement, but you never know, with this President of the United States. So that's what happened this morning. It was very, very, very strange. (laughs) We thought we had some level of agreement, but you never know. With this president of the United States. So that's what
0: happened this morning.
2: It was very, very, very strange.
0: Joining us now is Sarah Fisher, media reporter for Axios. We have plenty of 2020 previews all around. And this preview in particular is one that a lot of people have been increasingly worried about, especially after the last election and all the misinformation that was going around. There was a doctored video of Nancy Pelosi floating around on Facebook and and YouTube and Twitter where the video was slowed down a little bit it was a speech she was giving at the Center for American Progress and it made her sound a little slurred maybe like she was drunk or something like that so this video reignited this debate on how tech platforms should respond to misinformation and hoaxes it took them about 32 hours to fully address this issue tell us about the video and then what Facebook did in response
3: when you listen to the speech When it's not doctored, it sounds as though the speaker sounds perfectly normal. But what happened was somebody took the video and they slowed it down by roughly 75%. And then what they did is they increased the pitch of the speaker's voice so that even though it was slowed down, the pitch matched her normal pitch. So if you were just a regular person watching the video, it seemed like Nancy Pelosi was really out of it or drunk Well, what happened was this video starts to go viral you have prominent figures like rudy giuliani who are retweeting copies of the video you have it spreading all over big tech platforms like facebook and twitter and so the existential crisis is if you are one of those tech companies do you remove the video because it's fake news or do you leave it up because it's not terrorism content it's not violent content it doesn't violate your policies but You take action on it in a different way. Maybe you say, hey, we're no longer going to let people retweet it or let people share it. And that's the route that Facebook took, but it's not the route that YouTube took. YouTube said, absolutely not. It's coming down. Facebook said it's staying up. So you're starting to see this tug of war between the tech companies of what to do over political misinformation
0: ahead of our 2020 elections. Facebook has this hands-off approach to this whole thing. Policing content on their site, they use third-party fact-checkers instead of their in-house people And that was part of the problem why it took so long to address this particular video. I think it was about 32 hours later, they decided to demote the video rather than take it down. But it took that much time for fact checkers to actually fact check it.
3: Those fact checkers need to work with their own forensic scientists, with their own journalists, to ensure that they do, in fact, have fake or misleading information on their hands. And so once they establish that that's when they were able to make the judgment call that Facebook would need to demote the video. So it's a long and tedious process. And I think the big question is, do we have the time to wait? If there is a viral video that's surfacing the day before the polls open, 32 hours is not going to be fast enough. And so I think Facebook and a lot of the tech platforms are trying to wrestle with what they
0: do. It puts them in a a really tough spot because, you know, you want to be on the right side of things too. So you don't want to take down a video and then cause a whole controversy later. But as you said, I mean, it's the speed is is the important thing. If it's out there for a few hours, it's going to get picked up and re- copied and resent. And that's exactly what's happening with this video in particular. Also, there was a bunch of copycats that went out.
3: I think that the lesson learned here is that you have to move and you have to move quickly. And I think that if you're Facebook and your policy is, look, we don't necessarily take things down but we demote them so that they are not spreading fast if that's going to be your policy you better try to demote that as quickly as possible because what you're going to end up with is a video that goes viral and by the time you demote it everyone's already seen it
0: this could go all over the place this time it was just a video of nancy pelosi Making her sound drunk, but this could also very well be the president that they put words in his mouth or slow him down, make him sound like he's impaired. We know how the news cycles work. All of a sudden, then uh, one of the news channels are doing segments on whether this certain politico is is impaired or whether they should continue serving. You know, they sound drunk. You know, how crazy are they? It just takes moments for that stuff to really happen. Critics of Facebook saying that they need to be more proactive about it and delegating it to these third-party fact checkers isn't the right way, but if these fact-checking organizations are already working on this, maybe that makes them the best people to flag this stuff, at least.
3: It's a hard one because Facebook could make these judgment calls in-house if they hired editorial experts, but they don't want to. They don't want to be in the news business. They don't want to provide discretion over content, especially of this nature. So they would rather outsource it to third-party fact-checking sites. And the problem with doing that, though, is that Those third-party fact-checking sites don't have the resources that Facebook does. And so the reason it took them 32 hours to be able to assess this video and determine whether or not it truly was doctored is because they don't have 25,000 employees globally with thousands of engineers who could help them get through this in a matter of minutes. So it's a really fine dance. In one end, Facebook does dodge responsibility by outsourcing all editorial decisions. But on the other hand, they're outsourcing it to people that don't have the resources to move quickly, which, of course, makes the problem even worse.
0: Yeah, there was a Facebook representative that did an interview with Anderson Cooper. And for their part, they did say exactly what you said. We're not in the news business. We're in the social media business. But we've seen all the studies and the surveys. Most people do get a lot of their news from Facebook and their other social media. So their role in this is really amplified. Are we going to be seeing a lot more of this leading up into the next election?
3: There's always misinformation when it comes to people that are trying to gain or wield power. And you've seen this since the age of the printing press. But the difference here is that it's becoming easier to manipulate the information flow because we have social media, because we have automation, and because so many people have smartphones and rely on those smartphones for news. So I definitely would expect for this to ramp up ahead of 2020. And I think the big thing to look for is ways that big tech platforms either change their policies or adapt their practices to handle it, or quite frankly, ways that they don't and we might see that the problem just gets even worse
0: yeah i mean it's tougher the tech platforms for sure but it's just so much tougher as a consumer as somebody who's going to be reading the news and you see something like this what do you believe now and it's everybody needs to do their part and even the consumer needs to do their part and do their due diligence to not just believe everything that you see on the internet but it's getting tougher and tougher sarah fisher media reporter at axios thank you very much for joining us thank you so much
2: After providing an entree for parents to have some conversations about money in a kind of a natural way, kind of learn as you go away. And-
0: Joining us now is Julie Jargon, family and tech correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. I love stories like this. It's something that we always need to teach our kids about is money. But with the changing times and uh, new technology emerging, the methods with which we do it changes also. So right now, chore charts are out and electronic accounts are in. Uh, a lot of parents are using apps in particular, to help teach their kids about money, keep track of chores, even pay them, get them debit cards even. So tell us a little bit about this.
2: A lot of parents are finding that kind of the old fashioned method of posting a chore chart up on their refrigerator isn't resonating with today's kids. They're finding them to be embarrassing when they have friends over and they're just not looking at them. They're also not responding to their parents telling them to go clean their room. And so parents have been trying to meet their kids where they are, which increasingly is on their phones. So they're turning to apps that allow parents to assign the kids chores allows the kids to check them off once the chores are completed. Then they receive an allowance for every chore that they do, and they can see their balance rise and fall in real time. So they actually can see very quickly the fruits of their labor.
0: Let's be honest. Nobody really balances a checkbook anymore. They're using their apps. They're using their banking statements that's all on their phone and that's how they're managing their money. For kids to come into this, to learn it this way, I think is a big benefit for them. They're
2: able to do this in a fairly controlled manner, you know, kind of giving kids their first little bit of financial freedom. Some of the apps do come with debit cards and with some of them, the parents can set some controls so they can limit the amount of spending that their kids can do so they don't have to deal with overdraft charges and the kids don't go crazy on some sort of spending spree. And they also can limit the types of retailers where their kids can spend their money. So if they don't want them going on the apps Store and buying some games or right. spending too much money on Amazon.com or whatever, they can limit where they make their purchases.
0: Let's go through some of these apps that parents have been using. Greenlight is one of them. This one links to your parents' bank account so you can get a debit card for your kid. You can do all sorts of good stuff with that. You can even pay interest on money that they're saving.
2: Yeah, the parents can actually pay interest out of their own pockets as a way to incentivize their kids to save money. So that way the kids are seeing, you know, this this money is sitting in my account, but it's also increasing in value over time as I'm not spending it. And so that's one way to kind of teach them the value of saving. The money is held not within the app, but held by a federally insured bank. That issues the card, so it's not subject to an app going out of business. For example, if the the app crashes, it goes out of you know goes bankrupt or what have you. You know, the money is federally insured.
0: But it is relying on the bank of mom and dad. as if you you do set up that interest payment, the Uh, bank of
2: mom and dad are the ones is the one that's actually funding all of it. Yes, right, exactly.
0: (laughs) Tell us about people that you've talked to, how they have seen that these apps have helped. There was one example in your story where. They said that the discussion surrounding how they're spending money really changed the thinking in the child. I think one of the dad's Busted his kid and said, "Hey, do you know? Do you think that was a good way to spend that seven dollars?" It's like they know they're getting pinged when the kids are using the debit cards and whatnot, so they know exactly what you're spending your money on.
2: After providing an entree for parents to have some conversations about money in a kind of a natural way, kind of learn as you go away. And you know, one dad I talked to, his daughter loves going to Starbucks, and when she got her debit card, she was buying her friends drinks, and her dad had to have a little conversation with her about what this is for, and it's not for you to go out and be a big spender and treat all of your friends. And when you're out spending $7 at Starbucks, is that the best way to spend your hard-earned money? He said that over time, his daughter has become more responsible with the way she spends money. That you know, Back in the day when she got paid in cash, she would just spend her cash as soon as she earned it. And now that she can see her balance and see how it's tied to the tasks that she does at home, it is more tangible to her.
0: Let's run through some of the apps that parents can use to help with allowance, help with chore tracking, help really start teaching their kids about money.
2: Greenlight is one where the parents can choose where their kids can spend money from their debit card and they can limit the amounts and you know set a weekly or daily spending limit. That app costs a year per family, and it comes with a debit card for up to five children. There are some fees if you lose the card or if you want to customize your card with a picture, it costs a little extra. GoHenry is another app. It's very similar to Greenlight in the way it operates. It also allows kids to set savings goals. So if a child wants to save up to buy a certain item or one family I spoke with, their daughter was saving money to buy car insurance. They can enter the cost of whatever it is or service they want. Then there's a sort of a calculator that shows them how much they need to save each week to reach that goal. So if they need to buy car insurance in six months, they can kind of set a little amount so that they know how much they have to put in.
0: No more coins and dollars in a piggy bank. You have the app help you manage that, which is important. Yeah, it's
2: a little easier, a little more visible. That app costs $48 a year per child. Personalizing the debit card costs a little bit extra. But not all of the apps involve debit cards and money changing hands in the app. There's another one called Rooster Money. It's designed for younger children to kind of give them their first taste of chores and understanding How doing work equates to earning money. That's designed for kids as young as four, and that just allows the family to track what chores are done, and then the parents have to pay them outside of the app.
0: Julie Jargon, family and tech correspondent at the Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment. Give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez and this was your Daily Dive.